rebuking the Corinthians for being tolerant to false gospels and false teachers. And it's a wonderful, wonderful exhortation for us today that we would never bear beautifully with any teaching that distorts the truth. And we've talked very extensively about that, haven't we, in First John. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, as always, we'll work our way through a few more verses in First John this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful that You have given us a clear revelation from heaven. You have given us Your truth, the truth of Your Word, inscripturated revelation. We are able now to detect truth from error because Your Word is the standard by which we test all things and examine all things. And we know that Your Word is true. Your Word is pure. Every word of the Lord is pure. Jesus Himself said the Scripture cannot be broken. The psalmist said Your Word is settled forever in the heavens. Jude referred to it as the once for all faith handed down to the saints. Biblical, doctrinal, theological truth given to us from You that is fixed in the canon of Scripture and that keeps us from being led astray. And we thank You, O God, that You've given us such a wonderful truth. Truth that centers on Christ, centers on the Gospel. Truth that comes to us with clarity and power and authority and transforming power. Lord, that's what Your Word does to us. It changes our minds, it changes our hearts, it changes our lives. And we are grateful that You've given us Your Word. I pray that as a church we would be discerning, we would not be gullible, pray that we would never bear beautifully with that which distorts the truth about the person and work of Christ, the truth about God, the truth about the Holy Spirit, the truth about the Gospel, that like the Apostle Paul, we would have a zero-tolerance policy for any distortion of the Gospel, that we would love the true Gospel, cling to the true Gospel, and defend it and proclaim it to a lost and dying world who desperately needs it. And this morning, as we open up the Scripture, Lord, we desire that You would meet with us as we believe You have already done, that You would open up our hearts to understand the Word of God, that You would purify our lives by Your Word, and that You would make us Your people who live our lives for Your glory, to which end we pray. Amen. Alright, well, uh, let's return to 1 John chapter 4 this morning, 1 John Chapter 4, we're getting there. We're not much further away from the end, and if you haven't been able to tell yet, we're kind of speeding up the pace a little bit. Uh, Hopefully, we'll finish up chapter 4 next week, and when I come back from vacation, we'll be in the final chapter. So, just in case you thought we weren't getting anywhere, maybe that was a little bit of a reassurance to you. We are working our way through 1 John. But chapter 4, and for today, we come to verses 12 through 16. 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, a section that really fits into a larger section. I told you last week that really verses 7 through 21 constitute one rather large portion of Scripture. That portion is dominated by the theme of love, the theme of love. A form of the word love is used 27 times in these 15 verses. Clearly, it's a major emphasis in this section. 
And I told you that I struggled last week to figure out the best way to deal with this large section. It could be dealt with really as one passage with one theme, one outline, and essentially preached as one sermon over several weeks, broken into parts. But after digging a little deeper into the text, I've decided that it's going to be best to break it up into three distinct but somewhat related sections. Three distinct but related passages. Verses 7 through 11, verses 12 through 16, and verses 17 through 21. We looked at 7 through 11 last week. We'll look at 12 through 16 this week, and we'll finish up with 17 through 21 next week. And though the concept of love is evident in all three of those passages, I think the theme changes just a little bit in verses 12 through 16. The word love is still used here five times in these five verses. So it would be easy to assume that that must be the main idea here as well. But there's another word used in verses 12 through 16 repeatedly that I think becomes the dominant idea. And that word is the word abide. The word abide. That word is used six times in these verses, and that clearly becomes the main idea here in this passage. And that becomes pretty obvious just by reading it. So let me do that now. 1 John chapter 4 starting in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Again, as I said, clearly the theme here is that of abiding. Abiding. We see the word in verse 12. God abides in us. We see it again in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Again in verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And finally, we see it three times in verse 16. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. This is a passage about abiding. Abiding in God. Abiding in Christ. Abiding in the love of God. The Greek word for abide, the word meno, it means to remain, to stay, to continue. Here it denotes union, perseverance, fellowship, communion. In other words, it signifies continuing in a saving relationship with God. True believers are those who continue in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They abide in Him. John has already introduced this concept of abiding. He's had much to say about it. He used the word back in chapter 2, verse 6, where he wrote, The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The one who professes to be in a saving relationship with God should prove that by pursuing Christ-likeness. 
by seeking to become like Christ. He used the word again in chapter 2, verse 10. For there he wrote, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. True believers abide in the light. They abide in God. They abide in Christ. They abide in love. In verses 24 through 28 of chapter 2, John really focused on abiding there. That was the main theme of that passage. And there, John defines believers as those who let the truth about Christ abide in them. True Christians continue in biblical Christology. They hold fast to the true Christ. So clearly, John has a lot to say in this letter about abiding. And he got all of this from our Lord Himself. That's where John learned his theology. He spent three years of following Christ and spending time with the physical Christ during His earthly ministry. And that's where he learned about this concept of abiding. In John chapter 15, verses 1-11, through 11, Jesus explained to His disciples the significance of abiding in Him. And I'm not going to read the passage for you. I've done that before. But essentially there, Jesus... Jesus illustrates the relationship between Himself and His disciples with the relationship between a vine and its branches. Just as a vine, or branch, sorry, just as a branch could never bear fruit unless it's connected to the vine, so the only way we can bear fruit is if we're connected to Christ, if His life flows through us. The only way for us to be fruitful is to continue in a saving relationship with God through faith in Christ. And that is what a true believer does. He abides. He abides. He continues. He remains. He perseveres. Christians are those who continue in a saving relationship with God through Christ. However, the sad reality is that many who claim to be in a relationship with God are not. Many who, like the false teachers in John's day, claim to abide in God, in reality, do not. They are deceived, deluded, bewitched. They're the ones Jesus described in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Those who say, Lord, Lord, and hear those words, I never knew you. They're false converts who have deceived themselves. And in light of the horrific reality of false conversion... It is absolutely critical, and you know this, I'm not telling you anything new, this is really what John has been saying the whole way, but it is absolutely critical that we be able to determine if we are truly in a saving relationship with God. We can and should know that we abide in Him. And in verses 12-16, through John's going to help us figure out how we can know that. John's going to help us know that we abide in Him. And He does that by giving us three evidences of abiding. Three evidences, three proofs that we indeed abide in a saving relationship with God. And as we look at these one by one, may we examine our hearts in the light of these evidences in hopes that we might come to know that indeed we abide in Him. So three evidences. Number one, the first evidence of abiding is our love for others. Our love for others. Look at verse 12. 
No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. John says, no one has seen God at any time. Now wait a minute. Didn't people see God in the Old Testament? Didn't people see God in the New Testament through the Incarnation? Through Christ? Wasn't He God in the flesh? The answer, of course, is yes. We know that Jesus was God in the flesh. He said, to see Me is to see the Father. We know that people saw God in Christ. We also know in the Old Testament, in Genesis 18, God appeared to Abraham in human form. In Genesis 32.30, Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Jacob saw God. In Judges 13.22, after encountering the angel of the Lord, and by the way, just a side note, this is free, this is extra. The angel of the Lord, when you encounter him in the Old Testament, that is a temporary manifestation of God. That is what we call a theophany or a Christophany. That is God himself in temporal, visible human form. Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. You'll see him often in the Old Testament. In one place we see him is in Judges 13.22. And after encountering that angel, Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. They saw God. So in light of the fact that many Old Testament saints saw God, how can John say that no one has ever seen God at any time? How can he say that? Well, three reasons. Three reasons. Let me give you three. First of all, no one can see the true essence of God because He is a spirit. No one can see the true essence of God because He is a spirit. The word spirit, I've told you before, comes from the Greek word pneuma. It's where we get the word pneumonia from. It means breath or spirit. You can't see your breath unless it's winter in New York. Uh, But ordinarily, you can't see your breath and you can't see a spirit. It's an invisible, immaterial essence. So no one can see God in His essence because He's a spirit. 1 Timothy 6.16, there Paul says that God is the one whom no man has seen or can see, cannot see Him. 1 Timothy 1.17 says He's the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. Invisible. Colossians 1.15 refers to Him as the invisible God. Because He is an invisible spirit, He is the unseen God. He is invisible. But secondly, no one has seen God because no one can see Him in the fullness of His divine glory and live. No one can see Him in the fullness of His divine glory and live. He is infinitely holy and we are radically sinful. And therefore... To see Him in the fullness of His majesty would be instant death for us. That's why in the Old Testament, Jacob and Manoah were so stunned that they had seen God and lived. In Exodus 33.20, God told Moses, You cannot see My face, for no man can see Me and live. No man can see God in the fullness of His beauty and His majesty and His glory and live. The only reason Jacob and Manoah and his wife were able to live is because they saw temporal manifestations of God, theophanies. They didn't see Him 
in His fullness. But there is a third possible interpretation of what John means here by no one has ever seen God. And that is that no one has ever seen God the Father. No one has ever seen God the Father. We've seen the Son, but no one has ever seen the Father. John made that point in the prologue of his Gospel. In John chapter 1, in verse 18 he said this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one has seen God, that is the Father, at any time, but the only begotten God or Son is the one who reveals Him. They haven't seen the Father, they've seen the Son. Which means, in the Old Testament, when people saw God, they didn't see the Father. Who did they see? They saw the Son. The Son. Jesus affirmed that again in John chapter 6, verse 46. There He said, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. No one has seen the Father, except the one who is from Him. That is, the Son, the Lord Jesus. So when God is seen in the Old Testament, they're seeing Christ. They're seeing Christ. That becomes then a wonderful proof of the deity of Christ, doesn't it? If no one's ever seen the Father, who do they see when they see God? They see Jesus. Because Jesus is God. He is the Word of God, the revelation of God. So no one has seen God at any time. No one can see His invisible essence. No one can see Him in the fullness of His divine glory and live. No one has ever seen the person of the Father. And no one can see the Son today because the Son is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So the question then is, how does the world see the love of God today? How does God manifest His love to the world today? He did it 2,000 years ago in the cross, but how does He do it today? The answer is through us, through His church. Look at verse 12 again. No one has seen God at any time, If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. No one has seen God at any time. No one. But they see His love through us when we love one another. God displays His love to a watching world through His people. In other words, the invisible God becomes visible through our love for others. The invisible God becomes visible through our love for others. And for those who love, they give evidence that they abide in God. They give evidence that they are in a saving relationship with God. And as they love, the God who abides in them demonstrates His love through them. He displays His love through His people. That's why love is so important. That's why it's so essential that we, as the people of God, love one another because there is where they see God's love today. He displays His love in us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, these are familiar words to us. Jesus said to His disciples, You are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt does, did two things in the ancient world. Preserved. And it's seasoned. Preserved and it's seasoned. 
Jesus is saying, we are the ones in a fallen world who through our love and good deeds season the fallen world. Just as nasty food becomes tasty food when seasoned with salt, so a fallen world sees a glimpse of God's glory and love when it's seasoned by our love and good deeds. In verse 14, Jesus gave another illustration of Matthew 5. He said, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now wait a minute. Isn't Jesus the light of the world? Yes. But Jesus is no longer in the world. So how does He shine forth His light today? The answer is in us. Through His people. In His church. His light shines forth in us. In verse 16 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men. How? In such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The light of God's grace and love and glory shines forth in a broken world through the love and good deeds of His people. We are the ones who display the love of God. In John 13.35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are My disciples, if you have love for one another. The world will know that we are disciples of Christ when we display His divine love to one another. His selfless, self-giving, sacrificial, serving love to others. His love then shines forth through the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul describes the church as His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ, the visible representation of Christ on the earth. The fullness of Him, we are the ones through whom He displays Himself and His love to the world. John MacArthur says, the only demonstration of God's love in this age is the church. The church. He goes on to say, love originated in God, was manifested in His Son, and demonstrated in His people. It originated in God, manifested in the Son, demonstrated through His people. Daniel Aiken says, No one has seen God in His essence, but we can see God through the lives of those who demonstrate His love to others. People see God in us. John Stott adds, The unseen God, who was once revealed in His Son, is now revealed in His people when they love one another. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God demonstrates Himself to the world through you, Christians, as you love one another. The love of the Trinity is displayed through you. Does that motivate you to love? Is that an incentive to love others? When you know that divine love, the same love that is within the triune God from eternity, the same love that was displayed in the cross, is the same love that we get to display in an imperfect way, obviously, every day as we love one another. And those who do that, they can know that He abides in us. He abides in us. And the result of that comes at the end of verse 12. His love is perfected in us. His love 
is perfected in us. The word perfected translates the Greek word teleao, teleao. The word could mean perfect, but it could also mean mature, complete, to be brought to a desired end, an intended goal. John is saying God's love comes to its intended result and goal in us when we display His love to a watching world. God's love comes to its intended goal when we display His love to a watching world. His love produces our love for others. That in turn provides assurance of salvation. And that's how we know that God abides in us. Because His love flows through us. And when His love is displayed through us to a watching world, then His love is perfected in us. And so the first evidence of abiding is our love for others. Our love for others. And we'll look at that again in verse 16. But for now, let's consider the second evidence of abiding. Number two, the Spirit's work in us. The Spirit's work in us. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We can know that He abides in us, and we abide in Him. We can know that we are in a saving relationship with God. We can know that we are saved. That He dwells within us. How? By this. Because He has given us of His Spirit. In other words, we have assurance by the work of the Spirit within us. To quote Daniel Aiken again, he says, God sent His Son to die for us. He sent His Spirit to live in us. It's glorious, isn't it? God sent His Son to die for us. He sent His Spirit to live in us. That's exactly right. He, that is God the Father, through God the Son, has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell within our hearts, and that Spirit provides us with assurance. Assurance. John said the same thing back in chapter 3, verse 24. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. We know that we're in a saving relationship with God because the Holy Spirit bears witness to that. But how does He do that? How does the Holy Spirit give us assurance? He does it by the work He produces in your heart and life. By the work He produces in your heart and life. And in the immediate context, it's by the love that He produces within you. Remember, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the very first one mentioned. We love only because the Holy Spirit graciously and sovereignly produces His love in us. And when we see that love, we know that we abide in Him. Verses 7-12 through really focused on the Father and the Son. Now verse 13 focuses on the Holy Spirit. You could even say in a real way, verse 12 focuses on the Father. Verses 14 and 15 are going to focus on the Son. Verse 13 focuses on God the Holy Spirit. The love displayed by the Father in the Son is produced in us through the Holy Spirit. The love displayed by the Father in the Son is produced in us through the Holy 
Spirit. This is Trinitarian love. This is divine love. And those who see the Spirit producing that love in them can know that they are Christians. But the Holy Spirit produces more than just love in us. Fruit of the Spirit includes more than love. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8. Don't lose your place in 1 John. We'll be right back. But just a moment, we'll go to Romans 8. That is the sixth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's the first letter in the New Testament. Romans 8. And in Romans 8, Paul is describing the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. He explains that the Christian life is not lived by human effort, but by divine enablement. Divine enablement. Not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And in this chapter, he makes several statements that give us clarity on how the Holy Spirit provides us with assurance. Romans 8, and we're going to go in reverse order here. We're going to read backwards, starting in verse 16. Romans 8, starting in verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, bears witness to the reality of our salvation and sonship. How does He do that? He does this both internally and externally. Internally and externally. Internally, He convinces our hearts that we belong to God. Externally, He does this by the fruit and the work He produces in our life. Now, go back to verse 14. Romans 8.14 Paul tells us now how the Spirit testifies to our sonship. He says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. How do you know you're a son of God? How do you know you're saved? Because you're being led by the Spirit of God. But how do you know you're being led by the Spirit of God? How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Do you feel Him? You'll hear people say things like that sometimes. I've never felt the Holy Spirit. I don't even know what that means. You feel the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's not a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It goes beyond the feeling. It goes to the life. Look what he says in verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, you, you don't feel the Holy Spirit. You feel the effects of the Holy Spirit. You don't see the Holy Spirit. You see the effects of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that in John 3, right? The wind blows where it wishes. You don't see it, but you see its effects. You don't see the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in you, but you see the work and the effects He produces in your heart and life. Those who are led by the Spirit, then, are those who by the power of the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the body. They're those who are subduing sin, mortifying the flesh, killing iniquity. This isn't really a profound thought, but really very simple. But the Holy Spirit makes you holy. The Holy Spirit makes you holy. How do I know that? It's in the name, right? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not indwell anybody without making them holy. So the evidence then that you're a Christian is that you have the Spirit. The evidence that you have the Spirit is He is enabling you to put sin to death, to grow in holiness. Now go to verse 4, Romans 8. 
verse 4. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who are walking in the power of the Spirit are enabled by the Spirit to fulfill the requirement of the law. They are enabled to habitually, as a pattern of life, obey the law of God. And we know that the requirement of the law, the heart of the law, is love. So those who have the Holy Spirit display that truth by their love and their obedience, their righteousness and their holiness. Verse 9 then issues a sober warning here in Romans 8. Down to verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're no longer in the flesh. You're no longer dominated by sin. You're no longer living in a state of spiritual deadness and unregeneracy. You live in a different realm. You have new life. Spiritual life. Divine life. The life of God within you. But the second half of verse 9 gives us the bad news. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You don't belong to Christ. Which means, if there is no evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, you are not a Christian. If there is no evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, you are not a Christian. Regardless of what you may say with your mouth. If your life has not been changed by the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. Go back to verse John 4 now. So don't trick yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Don't fancy yourself that, oh, you know, God knows my heart. I know my life isn't really changed and I'm still living in sin and living for the world and living for myself. But God knows my heart. I'm sincere. We can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. We can be convinced and yet still be deceived. It doesn't matter if you've professed Christ, if you've said a sinner's prayer, if you walk up the aisle, if you know Christian theology, if your life isn't changed by the Holy Spirit, you're not converted. You're not converted. That's John's main point here throughout 1 John. There's no evidence of the Spirit producing His love in you, subduing your sin, transforming your life, making you holy. You're not a believer. You're not in a saving relationship with God. On the other hand, if you do see the evidence that the Spirit is working in your life, then you can be confident that you're a believer, that you abide in Him. And again, we're not talking about perfection, right? I mean, none of us meet that standard, except for Christ. I'm not talking about perfection. But what we're saying is this. If you are not what you once were, if you can see that you are becoming more like Christ, even if it's ever so faintly, even if it's ever so slightly, you see the Spirit producing some measure of Christ-like love in you and holiness in you and obedience in you, then you can praise God and be confident that you're a Christian. So that's the second evidence of our abiding, the Spirit's work in us. But there's one more evidence of abiding here. We know we're in a saving relationship with God, not only because of our love for others, and because of the Spirit's work in us, but thirdly, because of our confession of Christ. 
our confession of Christ. This is familiar to us, isn't it? We see that in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In the immediate context, the we there is yet again an apostolic we. It refers to John and the other apostles. They're the ones who in a unique way saw that the Father sent the Son into the world. They are, as we noted back in verses 1-4 through of chapter 1, they're the ones who saw Him and handled Him and touched Him, looked long at Him, gazed at Him. They were eyewitnesses to His earthly ministry and His sufferings and His resurrection. And so though no one has ever seen God, the apostles have seen the love of God displayed in the cross. Displayed in the cross. The sending of His Son. And now, they testify to that reality. And John, as the last living apostle at the end of the first century, is yet again testifying to this good news right here in this letter, in 1 John. So this is uniquely spoken of, the apostles. But in a more general way, by extension, this is true for all Christians. All Christians are called to testify. We hear that word sometimes in certain Christian circles, don't we? Testify, right? The word testify, it translates the Greek word martureo. Martureo, and it means just that, to testify, to bear witness, to give report. It would be a word that would be used in a law setting, a courtroom setting. Here it has the idea of testifying by proclamation. We actually derive our English word martyr from this Greek word. A martyr in English is someone who dies for his testimony. But it was just so common for someone who gave testimony of Christ to die for that testimony that it came to be one who died. A martyr is one who dies. It is often, to testify for Christ is often meant to die for Christ. So in one sense then, all Christians are called to be martyrs. All Christians are called to bear witness of Christ. To testify of Him. We are, as Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, His witnesses throughout the uttermost parts of the earth by testifying to the Gospel. Which means then, that His love is displayed through us as we love others, and it's proclaimed by us as we testify to the Gospel. We testify to the Gospel. And what is this good news that we're called to testify about? Well, here it's that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to be its Savior with a mission to save. That's what John said back in verse 10, isn't it? Chapter 4, verse 10. We looked at that last week. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who out of His love died for us on the cross and bore the wrath of God that we deserve. He is the one who satisfied divine justice that was against us. He was crushed and bruised and bloodied under the judgment of the Father 
for our sin. He took our punishment, He paid the penalty, He bore the wrath, and therefore we are saved from that wrath. We are, in the language of Romans chapter 5, verse 9, saved from the wrath of God through Him. You ever use that word, I'm saved, I'm saved, and you wonder, what is that? what am I saved from? I have a friend who was witnessing in the streets one day and he said that a man came up and said, are you saved? And my friend said, from what? Is, is there a bee around me? What, what am I saved from? And the answer is, you're saved from God. Saved from God through God, by God, for God. Saved from God, through God, by God, for God. Saved from God's wrath, through God's Son, by God's grace, for God's glory. So Jesus is the Savior of the world. By the way, by using the word world here, a lot of misunderstanding about that word, he's not saying that he came to save every single person. If he did that, he's failed. Look around, every person isn't going to be saved. John does not mean that here. Most people will be damned. Jesus said that the gate to destruction is broad and many enter through it. Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. What John is saying here is that Jesus is the only Savior in the world. And He saves all of God's people, all of God's elect, all over the world, Jew or Gentile. He saves the people from every nation through Christ. He didn't die for all without exception. He died for all without distinction. Jew, Gentile, male, female, female, slave-free, regardless of your social economic status or gender or ethnicity, Christ died for a people like us. Salvation from judgment is through Christ. That's our testament. Christ is the Savior. And that's the apostolic word. And in verse 15, John once again affirms that true believers believe that apostolic word. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Max Anders wrote about this. Testimony about Jesus tells more than what Jesus did, save from sin. It also tells who He is, the Son of God. It's not just about His work, but it's about His person. It's not enough to believe that He died. You must believe in who He is. You must have the right Christ. True believers are those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe the apostolic word concerning the person and work of Christ. I told you before that all false teachers deny something essential about Christ, either His deity or His humanity or His sufficiency. Verse 14 dealt with the saving sufficiency. He's the Savior of the world. Verse 15 deals with the reality of His deity as God. He's the Son of God. Back in verse 2, consider that passage a couple of weeks ago, there John said, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, true believers and true teachers confess the reality of Christ's humanity and incarnation. They believe He was fully man. In chapter 5, verse 1, it's whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. True Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. But here in verse 15, 
It's whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. The evidence that you're in a saving relationship with God is that you believe the truth about Christ. You believe the truth. That, that just goes without saying, doesn't it? How can you be a Christian if you don't believe in the biblical Christ? There's this idea today that as long as they profess the name of Jesus, it's all good. We're all in the same group together. But if you distort the truth about Christ, specifically His person, you are not a Christian. Verse 2, it was His humanity. Verse 15, it's His deity. His deity. Jesus is the Son of God, not because He was created by God. You'll run into lots of groups. We, we dealt with the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses a couple of weeks ago. They'll tell you that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe it in the biblical sense. Jesus is not the Son of God by creation. He is the Son of God not by adoption. This isn't about His humanity. This isn't about His incarnation. Jesus was the Son before He became a human being. Jesus was the Son before Bethlehem. Jesus was the Son of God before the world began. This is not incarnational sonship. It's eternal sonship. Jesus was the Son, and that has to do with His essential nature, His eternal nature. He's the Son of God, not like angels are, by creation, not like men are, by adoption, like we are. He is the Son of God by nature. By nature. That's why He's called the only begotten. He's the only of His kind. The only in His category. The only one who possesses the nature and essence and glory and being of God in its totality. In its fullness. Hebrews 1.3 says He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus fully shares the nature and glory and being of God. One with Him in nature, but distinct from the Father in person. Which means, to call Him the Son of God is to make Him equal with God, John 5.18 says. He's the Son of God because He is Himself God. He is God the Son. God the Son. This, as I've said before, it involves belief in the deity of Christ. He's fully God. Belief in the humanity of Christ. He's fully man. Uh, belief in the sufficiency of Christ. He's the sufficient Savior. It also involves belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. Because to get Christ right is to get God right. To get God right is to get Christ right. The only right view of Christ is the Trinitarian view. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and true Christians believe that. For the one who confesses that truth, John says, God abides in Him and He in God. The evidence that you remain in a saving relationship with God is that you confess the truth about Christ. You believe in Him. So that's the third evidence of our abiding, our confession of Christ. But in verse 16, John takes us back to the first evidence once again. Namely, our love for others. We'll look at this verse really quickly. Look at verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Again, this is uniquely true of the apostles. They saw Christ. They 
watched Him come and die, they have come to know and believe in a unique way that Jesus loves us, that God loves us. They saw Him with their eyes. But it's also true for all Christians. All of us have seen this reality with the eye of our heart, with the eye of faith. So all of us, therefore, should come to know and believe the love that God has for us. It's a wonderful reality, a staggering truth, Christian. God loves you. The world may hate you, the world may forsake you, the world may abandon you, but God loves you and He will never leave you nor forsake you. And out of His love for you, He gave His Son for your salvation. He crushed Him under His wrath for your deliverance. That's the reality of the love of God in the cross. And as we noted last time, God's love is our example. God's love is our example. His love motivates our love. This is gospel-driven love. Gospel-fueled love. The imperative to love is rooted in the indicative of what Christ has done for us in His love. It comes from God as a gift of His grace. That leads John to his next statement here in verse 16. Again, he says, God is love. God is love. He said that back in verse 8. And we noted there that God is the source of our love. So all believers therefore display His love. God is love. Let me make a few clarifications on that statement really quickly. Perhaps the most abused verse in the Scripture. First of all, that does not mean that God is only love. That does not mean that God is only love. God is more than love. Scripture says that God is light. God is a consuming fire. Try that for a church sign. God is true. God is spirit. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is good. These are all attributes of God. And all of these attributes considered together are what make God God. The fullness of His divine glory, the fullness of His attributes is what make Him God. Secondly, this is not saying that God does not hate. You say, say something about God hating, people say, wait a minute, God is love. This does not mean that God does not hate. God does hate. Psalm 5.5 says that God hates the evildoer, all who do evil. Notice, He doesn't just hate evil, He hates the one who does evil. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, mentions seven things that the Lord hates. Among those are a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. God does hate. God hates. Paul Washer said, if you love children, you hate abortion. If you love marriage, you hate divorce. If you love righteousness, you hate evil. So God, out of the necessity of His love, must hate. He loves righteousness. He hates unrighteousness. Thirdly, this is not saying that love is God. This is not saying that love is God. God is love, but love is not God. I told you that a few weeks ago. These are two very different statements. It's like saying grass is green or green is grass. Grass is green and green is grass. No, green is not grass, but grass is green. Green is a color, it's a property of grass, and so love is an attribute of God, but love itself is not God. God is love, and therefore those who belong to Him will display His love.
That's what John says at the end of verse 16. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The one who continues to display habitual, increasing, Christ-like love demonstrates that he is in a saving relationship with God. He is connected to God. That's the one whose life is in God and God's life is in Him. God indwells Him. He's indwelt by God. He's in union with God. That's the one truly in a saving relationship with God. The one who displays divine love. So we have three evidences of our abiding. Three proofs that we remain in a saving relationship with God. Our love for others, the Spirit's work in us, and our confession of Christ. And we must examine ourselves in the light of these evidences to determine if we truly abide in Him. Do you see these realities in your life? Are these things the mark of your life? Is your life characterized by love or hatred? Self-centeredness or selflessness? Do you see evidence of the work of the Spirit in you producing His love producing holiness and righteousness and obedience? Is your life dominated by the Spirit in righteousness or the flesh in sin? Finally, do you confess the truth about Jesus? Do you believe in the biblical Christ? He's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Do you believe in His sufficient work on the cross for your salvation? If so, you can be confident that you are indeed abiding in God. So brothers and sisters, may we love one another, may we walk in the Spirit, and may we believe and proclaim the truth about Christ so that we may know that we abide in God and He abides in us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again that You have made it so clear in Your Word as to how we can know we are saved. That's really This passage really summarizes the entire book of 1 John. We know there are three tests that go together. Belief in the truth, obeying the truth, loving in truth. We know that those three tests serve as the standard by which we can measure the reality of our faith or the lack thereof. And this constant, relentless, repetitive, warning about false conversion in 1 John becomes a, an important reminder for us. Peter said he wanted to stir his readers up by way of reminder, and I'm sure John would concur with those words. And so Lord, thank You for reminding us again of this important truth. May our lives be marked by love, may it be marked by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, and may it be marked by the faith in the biblical Christ. And if there are people here this morning who are not really converted, who do not believe the true Christ, who haven't been born of the Spirit, who aren't loving and obeying the Word of God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that you would radically draw them to yourself for your glory. We pray all these things for Christ's sake. Amen.